Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to walk you through some selected scriptures and then we'll land in 1 Corinthians 9. I don't know when we'll land. Hopefully we land, uh, but we'll look at it when we get there. We're in a series called Habits. This is our fourth week. We're looking at five keys to growth and change in 2017. And listen, beyond, okay? Uh, God's desire is that we would grow. All healthy things grow. And I've had a practice in my Christian life. Uh, I look back five years and I look at facets of my life. I look at my ministry, my marriage, how I raise my kids, my relationships, my friendships and such. And as I have this practice, I look back five years, and a lot of times when I look back, I see, wow, like when I look at my preaching five years ago, it seems anemic. So I feel like I've grown in that area. You might not think I've grown, but I think I've grown, right? And I do the same thing in all areas because I want to grow, and I'm curious about life until, you know, they put me in the ground, right? I want to be on this journey with God. And I'm so impressed by our seniors here, by the way, who are 70 and 80 years old, and they take notes, and they go to conferences, and uh, have so much fervor. That's the way I want to be. When I started the series on habits, and, and we uh, advertised it in December, I knew there was going to be pushback. Because Christians get squirrely when, when you talk about habits or discipline or change. Uh, right away, they're like, speak to the hand, because, because if I'm going to change, only God can change me. And uh, everything else is just self-help garbage and all the rest of them. Now, beside that not being biblical or true, uh, how would you ever explain Christians who are living way below what God intends for them? How would you explain half-hearted or sloppy Christians? Uh, would you blame God he didn't change them enough? So I, I think what we're doing in this series, and, and this is my prayer, by the way, and you can't teach if you don't pray, and I pray for you guys all through the series. My prayer is that one day you would stand with the Apostle Paul and say, I have run the race, I finished my course, and now there's a crown of life for me. Now, you're going to have a crown of life. Salvation's not of you, it's all of God. I understand that. But the Bible talks about certain giftings God's put in us, and he requires, as stewards of those gifts, there's something for us to do. Now, granted, we live in a culture of excess, right? Uh, there's all these books in Christianity about being you know, radical and, and relentless for God, and you almost feel like if I'm not digging wells in Africa, I'm a complacent Christian. Nothing can be farther from the truth. And if you walk out of here today thinking about anything, think about this. Christianity, a walk with God, is the long game. It really is. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Uh, I'm going to celebrate my anniversary this month, 33 years, 23 years being a pastor. It's the long game. And a lot of the long game is ordinary days, mundane days where you get up and you walk with God, whether you feel like it or not, and you see him do great things. So uh, we're not talking about the next Steve Jobs or Billy Graham. We're talking about taking your gifts and talents, leaving it all on the table and having no regrets when you die. So I'm going to walk you through six habits this morning that I think will help you in 2017 and beyond. And the first person I want to look at who had a tremendous habit is in the Old Testament. His name is Joshua. Now, how would you like to be Joshua? You're the successor of Moses. Like, oh my gosh, this guy parted the Red Sea and he stood down a pharaoh in Egypt. How in the world do you follow the greatest leader maybe that ever lived? 
So Joshua was probably a little insecure, but we get some insight into his life when God speaks to him, and this is my life verse. If you ever get a card from me, this is on my card. The book of the, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all is, that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and you'll have good success. Anybody in here want to be successful in life? Yeah, everybody should. Like, I know you're in church and you think it's humble to say you don't want to be successful. Yes, you want to be successful. Yes, you want to prosper. It's the way God made you. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Have dominion over it. So the thing is, we have to figure out what is success. Now, it's certainly not to the same scoreboard as the dominant culture. It's not money, cars, and career. Now, always remember this. Successful people, that stuff seems to follow them. But that's not what we're driving at. We're seeking first the kingdom of God and all that it is, and these things will follow us. To me, biblical success is when God looks at you at the end of your life and says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Jesus said a faithful servant was the one who when the master comes, he'll find him doing. He's living out his faith. He's walking in the fruit of the spirit. He's producing 30, 60, and 100 fold. It's not quantity, it's quality. With the gifts you've been given, are you serving? In Hebrews chapter 11, we have a list of men and women who did great exploits for God. They're called the men and women of faith. And we see this phrase, by faith they did this, by faith they did that. Uh, one of them was Joshua. And it said, by faith, Joshua saw the walls of Jericho fall down. What a, what a feat, that fortified city. Author Gordon MacDonald says, in the great race of life, there are some Christ followers who stand out from all the rest. He said, I call them the resilient ones. The further they run, the stronger they get. They seem to possess these spiritual qualities. Number one, they're committed to finishing strong. Number two, they run inspired by a big picture view of life. Number three, they run free of the weight of the past. Number four, they run confidently trained to go the distance. And finally, they run in the company of a happy few. For those who were on the men's retreat, Gordon McDonald talked about everybody having at least five capital F friends that they're living life with. Well, one of these resilient ones was Joshua. And Joshua, I think the secret of his success we found in that verse, where he had an ironclad commitment to read, meditate, and commune with God through the scriptures. And you notice what it says? He meditated day and night. Do you know what you call something that you do day and night? A habit. Now, what's the one unifying habit of everybody in this room? Somebody said prayer in the first service and my belly laughed. You know, uh, every, eating, but there's, there's one habit we really, eating you have to do, right? God didn't give you kind of control of that. You have to eat, there's an urge. Brushing your teeth. Right? Everybody, everybody brush their teeth today? Don't raise your hand if you didn't, right? <laughs> like you tell somebody to brush their teeth, it's like you got cooties or something, right? Now, get this. In 1905, no one in America brushed their teeth. There was a salesman for Pepsodent who came to a guy who was the forerunner of modern advertising, and he wanted him to buy into uh, Pepsodent. And the guy said, no, all your door-to-door -door salesmen, they're not selling anything. And then he came up with an idea. He, he wanted to incentivize people to brush their teeth. So he thought if they had a reward, they could start this habit. Look up on the screen. This is the reward. 
And then later, there's a picture, a modern picture you all know. It's a, it's a real pair of teeth with that little sparkle. Did you ever see that? In other words, people were promised if you would use this product, forget about hygiene, when you smiled, everybody would know it. By 1930, not only were all Americans and Europeans brushing their teeth, but as far away as China, they were buying Pepsi. Now, I'm sure in the beginning, they started, and, and after a while, it just becomes a habit where today, reflexively, you wouldn't even think of not brushing your teeth. When I look at Bible reading, that's the way I want it to be in my life. I want it to be reflexive. I want it to become a habit. Why? Because my reward, get this, is to know God. Not to know about God, not to have knowledge, information, or to be able to judge other people or quote verses, or to check a box that I read my Bible, or to somehow think God has favor with me because I read my Bible. I want to know God. And God communes through the scriptures. Jesus was the word. You know, one of the great things of having older children is you start to have dialogues with them about the way they were raised. And my daughter told me one day, she's 26 now, that she had a fear that if she didn't do her devotions, that God was angry at her. And I said, oh my gosh, I don't know where you picked that up, but Bible reading should be a joy because you're communing with God. Richard Foster said, that's where the life is. It's, it's the only thing in the world that's life-giving. Now, some of you don't know how to get started with this. How do I make it a habit? So let me, let me give you some, some advice. I tell people all the time, read John chapter 1 and read it only. Pray before you read it, God, I want to hear your voice, speak to me. Read John chapter 2 the next day. Here's another practice, scripture saturation. Take one of the great chapters of all the Bible, in my opinion, Romans 8. Has all these wonderful promises to believers. Read Romans 8 every day for 30 days. You will be shocked when you minister and talk to people, Romans 8 will start coming out. Uh, another thing you could do is just read the wisdom books for a year. You could take 13 books of the Bible, read that in a year. Whatever you decide to do, you have to find a way to ingest in your spirit the word of God because it's living. Billy Graham, who's in his 90s now, said for 60 years of his life, he read all four gospels every month, and the last thing he read before he went to bed was the Bible. It's the last thing he wanted to see. It's a very good habit. What could the results of your 2017 be if every day you meditated and then acted on the word of God? I think I can tell you, number one, you would hear the whispers of God more clearly. See, Christianity is about hearing God, hearing his whispers. See, I can know theology, but I don't know that God wants me to start this church. I can know theology, but I don't know that God wants me to help somebody three doors down. But I think when you're immersed in the word and with God, you'll hear his whispers more clearly. I think you'll take bolder steps for God. I think you'll be healthier emotionally and physically. Um, and I think, like Joshua said, you'll have great success. Might this be a habit you could pick up for 2017? Now, for every habit you pick up, something has to go by the wayside. Maybe you're not watching Netflix as much or Fox News or a host of other things. You have to figure it out. Don't make it religious. Make it a practice. The second habit I want to talk about that I think is worth picking up comes from another one of my favorite characters in the Bible, and his name is Daniel. Now, 
If you don't know about Daniel's life, he had a fantastic start to life and a fantastic finish and tons of pain in the middle. We know he was one of the best and brightest of Israel. His life would have been quite predictable. He came from a royal family, and he would have had just a great, successful life in Israel. Um, At the end of his life, he serves as prime minister to two foreign kings and uh, becomes a prophet and writes a book of the Bible. But right in the middle of the book, there's a lot of pain. He's a teenager, and verse 1 of chapter 1 said, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And there's not a person in this room can relate to that verse because you live in America. To besiege a place means to come in and destroy it and level it. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. It would be like the Jews, what they call the night of the broken glass in Europe, Eastern Europe. When shop owners, the Nazis came, just broke their glass, took all their money, took all their paintings and everything they had and put them in concentration camps. And Daniel lives through this as a teenager. And he sees his, the city destroyed. And worst of all, the, the, the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now gone. And he goes to Babylon. He'll never come home. And he'll give his best years to a foreign king. But in Babylon, Daniel exhibited conviction, commitment, and courage. And he uses this gift of interpreting dreams. And he rises up to prime minister in Babylon. Life's going pretty good. Some jealous staff members forced Nebuchadnezzar into a decree that if anybody doesn't worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, they're going to get thrown in the lion's den. That was their form of execution. So this happens to Daniel, and there's a decree that his death is imminent. Just in a few days, he's going to be eliminated in a very horrific death. Daniel chapter 6 records what Daniel does. Here's his response. When he knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks to God. Isn't that what everybody does when bad things happen? Shoot one north, pray. Oh, God, I lost my job. What am I going to do, right? That's not what he did. What's the rest of the verse say? As was his Custom from early days. What's a custom? A habit. Daniel had a habit from the time he got to Babylon where he faced Jerusalem and he prayed three times a day. Uh, Just as an aside, anyone know why he faced Jerusalem? Um, You might be familiar today, maybe you fly on an airline or you watch television where you see Muslims face Mecca, right? That's a holy place. Or Orthodox Jews still face Jerusalem today. And you wonder, well, why do they do it? Well, Jews faced Jerusalem, Daniel, because that was the place of the atonement, the sacrifice. Every Jew knew they couldn't keep the law. So the sacrifice of the early and the evening, the smoke going up was a sign that God had covered their sins. So they would face Jerusalem. Now, um, another interesting thing happens in Babylon, by the way. Do you ever notice how when you read the New Testament, you see the synagogue, Jesus went to the synagogue, you see the synagogue, the synagogue, the synagogue, and you think, well, I know what a synagogue is, it's a place where Jews worship, but why is there never a synagogue in the Old Testament? And the reason is, a synagogue came out of Babylon. When the Jews went to Babylon, many of them never returned. They liked it there. It was very prosperous there. And because there was no temple, they built synagogues. It's actually a Greek word which means meeting place, and it was there where they would gather. 
So, as a Jew, Daniel faces Jerusalem. Now, now just another aside, listen to this. Uh, Islam wouldn't come along for 1,300 more years. So they barred this practice from the Jews. Muhammad, believe it or not, was fascinated by the Jews. They were people of one book, one faith, one God. And he took all the gods of the Kabadi and he, and he shrunk it down to Allah and the Quran and so forth. And they had a practice of facing Mecca. Now, I find this fascinating. Medina is their second holiest site, and then they have Jerusalem as their third holiest site, although it's never mentioned in the Quran. But if you are a Muslim on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and you face Mecca to pray, you actually turn your back on the Temple Mount, which is the Holy of Holies, which Daniel was facing. Just a very interesting aside. By the way, everybody know why we don't face Jerusalem? It is finished. It is finished. Jesus died and the veil was torn in two, and it's no longer a place of worship, it's the person of worship. So when we're here right now, this is the house of God, when we leave, it's just an auditorium. You can do it, you can juggle, do anything you want in here. It's not the house of God when we leave. So um, he faces Jerusalem, listen, as was his custom. What if in 2017 you picked up a habit of not praying in a crisis, but praying every day? Someone might say, well, what's prayer? Um, there's a lot of books written on prayer. You know what prayer is? Talking to God. That's all it is. And expecting him to reply. That's all it is. Now, you know, there's other forms of prayer. There's adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, supplication. Jesus talked about the model prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Um, there's a lot you can talk about prayer. At the end of the day, it's just talking to God. Do you know what I think would happen to you if your prayer life became daily? I think, first of all, there would be a readiness in your spirit. What do I mean by that? Readiness means that you are equipped now for what might come down the road. And by the way, do you know what's coming down the road? Pain. Pain's coming down the road. Now, there's segments of Christianity that will never say that, right? In fact, they're going to tell you pain avoidance is what Christianity is. No, it's not. Ecclesiastes 3, seasons of life. We lose the ones we love. There's war and suffering, and we live in a fallen world. Jesus said we're going to be persecuted. Pain is coming. Peter said, don't count the trial as though something strange has happened to you. It's coming. But if you have a habit of prayer, when, when trials come, there's a readiness. Now, I'm not saying there's not fear. The number one commandment in the Bible is fear not. I had a woman after the first service came up to me, tears in her eyes, she lost her job. And I said, look, yeah, that's a, that's a fearful thing. The rug was pulled out. And I told her about that verse in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah said when the year King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord. Uzziah was the only king Isaiah had ever known. For 40 years he reigned in Israel. And as long as Isaiah was on the throne, life was comfortable. What happens when the Uzziahs of our life are gone? You gotta look to God again. You gotta hear his voice. And I comforted this woman. I said, you know, now's your time to trust God and he's gonna walk you through the pain. The thing I love about Daniel is that his readiness was in existence long before he heard the roar of the lions. 
This was his custom every day. This is what drove him not to eat of the king's delicacies or drink of his wine. The other thing that happens through prayer is you kind of get in this synergy with God. I read Paul Yonggi Cho's book when I was a young Christian. He was a pastor in Korea, and he said one of his first prayers to God was he needed a bicycle. But he prayed specifically. He said, God, give me a white bicycle, a 10-speed, etc. Now, I don't want to get into theology if we should pray that way. But Paul Yonggi Cho said it was important to him because when he got the bicycle, he's like, well, I, now I know this is God. He went on to build the biggest church in the world, start the greatest small group ministry the world's ever seen. James says you have not because what? You ask not or you ask amiss to consume it on your own lusts. God wants to hear from us. He wants to hear from us every day. Adam walked with God in the time of the evening breezes. He didn't know anything about morning devotions. He was a night guy. So, so, so don't get in a trap of when it is, where it is. But you need to start that habit, and I think it'll bear good results. The fourth person I want to look at is the Proverbs 31 woman. Now, Ken Graves did a fantastic job when he was here in the summer where he um, talked about how the Proverbs 31 woman was actually written by a man, King Lemuel. His mother told him, this is what you're looking for in a wife. And he writes the famous words, who can find a virtuous wife? Her worth is above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her. Uh, he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil. Here we go again. All the days of her life. All the days of her life. Now go back and read Proverbs 31. This woman was off the charts. And if I look at what she did every day, I would say the habit she has was one of taking initiative. This is very important in the life of a Christian. Again, Christians go squirrely on this one. God's going to do it all, right? And they fall into two traps. Number one, complaining about circumstances. You know, my life turned out this way because of parents, spouses, coaches, siblings. Um, the other trap is it's all going to work out. God will take care of it. Well, when you look back five years and see there's been no growth, is that God's fault? He didn't take care of it? Or are we not letting him prune us? See, if you're not interested in growth, if you, if you don't think God's involved, why did Jesus say every tree that grows, he prunes back? There's got to be pruning in life for future growth. Um, we're going to hear from John Maxwell next week that we all have uphill dreams and downward habits. We all have uphill dreams and downward habits. And, and we're going to have to take initiative. Uh, here's another, just from the lips of Jesus about taking initiative. Uh, there's a parable called the shrewd manager. It's about a steward who lost his stewardship. The owner came and said, I got to cut you loose. You haven't, you haven't managed my resources well. And the guy, before he got laid off, he ran to all the people that owned his master money. He said, look, you owe 1000 just give me 500 You owe 500 give me 250 And he went right down the line. And everybody listening to Jesus' parable probably thought, geez, he's going to condemn this guy for this unscrupulous practice. And instead, Jesus commends the guy. And he commends him, he said, because this guy took unrighteous mammon and he did something about it. In other words, at least the guy took initiative. It's a very interesting parable, the shrewd manager. 
Again, the seasons of life, we're going to work probably till we're 67. Uh, I think God's called us to love what we do, to love Mondays. And a lot of what we do in life is going to take initiative. You know, that chart I gave you early in, in the series, you're going to have to figure out, are you adequately challenged? Sometimes if you're over or under challenged, it's because of pro- uh, procrastination. Oh, yeah, I'll get to that sometime. And truth is, you'll never get to it. There's a whole host of tools that you might need to get to it. Some people know nothing of time management or handling finances. There are things we think are secular, and I think everything's spiritual if it's true, uh, that we might have to learn. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. That word wisdom is used 46 times in Proverbs. Every time it's used, it's used about the craftsman's skill, an axe, a saw. And so what... Solomon is saying there is a skill to live life. And sometimes you have to acquire these skills. We were on vacation one year, and when we're on vacation, we go to bookstores almost every day. Uh, Probably no one would ever want to go with our family on vacation. And my daughter one day bought this book called The Secret Art of Tidying Up. You may have heard about it. It was number one for a couple years. Written by a Buddhist lady, I know that. You don't have to write me emails and tell me that. Um, But my daughter bought this book because she's kind of an artist, and she's like kind of an airhead, and uh, her room, if you're you're my age, kind of looked like Oscar Madison from The Odd Couple and all. And uh, I couldn't believe it, could not believe it. Short of my mom quitting smoking, which I thought was impossible, my daughter went home and through three quarters of everything she had out. Because in this book, the lady said, if you haven't touched a piece of clothing in three months, get rid of it. Every guy in this room, coming to church made it for you today. If you haven't touched it in three months, get rid of it. If you haven't wore shoes, get rid of it. If you haven't read this book, get rid of it. Revolutionized her life, but she took initiative. Maybe that's a habit you might want to pick up this year, finding a place where you can take initiative instead of letting things happen. Uh, The next person we're going to look at is the psalmist in Psalm 1. Uh, Whenever we read this, we always talk about his delight is in the Lord, uh, that he reads the word of God day and night, and he'll be by the trees of waters and everything. But I want to start from the beginning where it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, he doesn't stand in the path of sinners, and he doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. Uh, I was reading this this week, and I feel like God spoke to me that, you know, I think most of us understand we're in the world and we're not of it, right? Uh, I think that verse is saying that. But for me personally, God was saying, We live in a world where we have social media, we have Twitter, Facebook, we have 24-7 cable news, internet, sports programming, and some of us are saturated in that stuff. And when you're saturated in that stuff, you are walking in the counsel of the ungodly, you are sitting in the path of sinners, and you're becoming like them, you're becoming cynical, because what you're filling your life with is all their opinions and all their ideas. When I became a Christian in 1983, um, I had a collection of 500 albums, vinyl, which is back, so all of you know what I'm talking about. I had everything from Herb Albert to Black Sabbath, okay? I had this big repertoire of music. 
And probably six months into my Christian walk, somebody gave me a teaching on Satan's influence in rock music. And it really opened my eyes to these lyrics that were just being pumped into my spirit. And so I threw those 500 albums out, probably didn't go to a movie for five years, watched very little television. Now, probably came full circle 15 years later where I realized that, you know, film is an art and, you know, you know, there's things that probably we can see and can't see and everybody's going to make up their own mind and television and, and all this stuff. But, but, but I remember those days being so cleansing. And I'm at the point now where I could sit around with my kids and I, and, and I can listen to some of their songs. I can talk about my ear and all that. But listen, please hear me. I could never listen to a steady diet of it. Never. I could never go home and put on like a Rolling Stones album and just enjoy the afternoon. And if that offends somebody, then let it offend you. And if it sounds like legalism, then let it be legalism. But I'm telling you, if, if I'm trying to, as a pastor, to get you to spend 15 minutes reading your Bible and you're going to spend four hours listening to Sympathy for the Devil, I'm in a, I'm in a losing game. I'm in a losing game, and it's going to kill your spirit. Christians that watch horror movies, extreme violence, go to movies with 75 F words. I don't know how it doesn't break your spirit. And I don't know how you can pump yourself filled with all this nonsense. I'm being very serious now. Some of you have to break some of these habits. And you can't break it because I said it. Look, the beautiful thing about me is that I discovered this. And then God asked me to make a choice. But again, I don't think you'll grow unless you can take some of these habits to heart. The next habit comes from Jesus himself. So if you have problems with habits, here, here it is from his lips. In Luke chapter 4, it says, He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Jesus had a habit, like brushing his teeth, of assembling with the people of God once a week. And can I throw this out to you? In a corrupt system. Corrupt. The temple was corrupt. The synagogue was corrupt. He was there. Hebrews says we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but we should gather together more and more as we see the day approaching. Uh, there is something mystical when we gather. I always think about the man at the pool of Bethesda where he had been there for 38 years, and one day Jesus came to him and said, do you want to be healed? If you're not here, Jesus can't say that to you. There's something about us gathering. Um, we really really spent a lot of time on saying, I know this sounds trivial, how can we shrink the coffee lines for you guys? Because this is an anomaly. 900 people get out and they all want to go in the cafe and no other business faces that. So we come up with these creative ideas of how to make that possible, but every once in a while, I'm like, really? Like, we're really trying to figure this out? Like, people are really complaining? Like, we're in church. You know, I can see if you're in Starbucks and you're in a rush, but are we in a rush? Like, like maybe the guy next to you lost his wife. 
Or maybe the kid in front of you is a broke college kid where God's telling you, why don't you pay for their lunch? I mean, these are the things we have to sort out. This is the place we come to see and bless one another. For a lot of people, this isn't a custom anymore. Some of it's affluence. People have shore homes, mountain homes, uh, hobbies, AAU sports. Group Magazine has been tracking children and youth attendance in churches uh, for quite some time. In 1970, when they tracked kids, they had four out of four attendance in a month. In the 1980s, it went down to three out of four. In the early 2000s, two out of four. And in 2016, it was 1.5 out of four. And we're seeing the same trends here. You know how hard it is to minister to children and youth where Sally and Joe come in and you love them, they have a small group leader, and you don't see them until February? You know how hard it is for that kid to be known and be discipled? We're raising a generation where church is no longer a high priority. And uh, I don't know what that's going to look like in 15 or 20 years. Now, I grew up in a denomination where you had to go. It was a holy day of obligation. So what we would do is we would go kind of towards the end and we'd sneak in and get a bulletin so we could give it to our parents and say, yeah, we were there. (laughs) And then in my conversion, it's like, no, I want to go. I can't wait to go. It's the greatest hour of the week. We were in New Jersey one time on vacation and we tried not to do that a lot because my kids generally would like invite the whole church there and it wasn't a vacation for me. So uh, we're down the shore one time and it was a Wednesday. I'll never forget it. It was about 3 o'clock, beautiful blue skies. And one of my kids turns to me and says, are we going to church tonight? I mean, I think, are you saying like a church or our church, which is two hours away? Uh, no, we're not going to our church. This is 50 weeks of the year we go there. We're down the shore. And they were kind of bummed out that they weren't going to be at our church on a Wednesday night. How is this habit? Small group, church, gathering with the people of God once a week. If Jesus needed it, I think we do. The last habit comes from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 9.24. I asked you to turn there. And he writes this, Do you not know that those who run the race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Lest, when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Um, You know, if you ask the question, who lives your Christian life? You can look at this verse and say, well, I do. Paul said he buffeted his body, he disciplined himself, he was tempering all things. Problem is, he wrote another verse where he said, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And what you discover in that paradox is that for the first time in life, you serve a master who has your best interest at hand. And he has a race for you, and he's come alongside to help you win. First time in your life. And so God wants to walk side by side with each and every one of us. Michael Horton said there are no shortcuts to excellence in any area of life, not even spiritual life. And it's the commitment to the ordinary that makes the difference. It's why Bruce Springsteen for seven hours played one chord. It's why I dribbled for hours and shoveled snow to become a basketball player. 
Discipline is a part of the Christian experience. We are disciplined followers of Jesus Christ. We're disciples. One of the things we're doing as a staff in 2017 in our ministries is we're getting more rigorous about goal setting. What we call WIGs, you may have heard about this, wildly important goals. We're all putting together one or two wildly important goals for the next six months so that when we see God accomplish them through us, we can celebrate all that he has done. Now, goals are good. They're not God. And we know from James that God might, be, might redirect. But we've got to set goals. If you don't set a goal, how do you know if you're growing? If you set goals, you need discipline. Maybe this could be a habit you pick up in 2017. Genesis 1.26 said we're made in the image of God. Because we're made in his image, he's given us dreams, ambitions, and desires. He wants us to do great things. He wants us to be involved with what he's doing. So I want to leave you with a series of questions. Number one, is your bar high enough for what you think God can accomplish in your life? Number two, have you, have you kind of figured out, are you adequately challenged in life and how will you change some of your things? Uh, have you set goals for 2017? Have you set spiritual and personal goals? Are they attainable? Are they measurable? Do you practice advanced decision making? In other words, you don't wait until you're in the fire to figure things out. Have you made concrete decisions of what you'll do like Daniel ahead of time? Have you rearranged time, money, priorities to accomplish the things that God has put on your life? 